Have you finished your personal statement yet? Now's the perfect time to get it professionally reviewed by a medical school HQ expert advisor. We have former directors of admissions, admissions officers, and the like on our small team of amazing people. They have the inside knowledge from reading thousands and thousands and thousands, tens, if not 100,000 personal statements going through the process and setting up the process for their whole committee. They know exactly what medical schools look for and the common red flags that can get your entire application thrown out. Take advantage of our flash sale right now, going through May 6th, up to 6,000 characters reviewed for just $150. That's a $75 discount on our regular price. Go to editmyps.com. Again, that's editmyps.com. If you're applying to medical school in 2022, to start medical school in 2023, join me Wednesday or Thursday, Wednesday night at 9.30 p.m. Eastern, or Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern at premedworkshop.com. Go register today. I'm gonna show you how to tell your story in your application. Again, that's premedworkshop.com. If you are applying to medical school in 2022, be there or be square. The Premed Years is part of the MedEd Media Network. That's M-E-D-E-D-Media.com. This is the Premed Years, session number 186, Hello and welcome to the two-time Academy Award-nominated podcast, The Pre-Med Years, where we believe that collaboration, not competition, is key to your pre-med success. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Gray, and in this podcast, we share with you stories, encouragement, and information that you need to know to help guide you on your path to becoming a physician. Thank you for joining me again this week here at The Pre-Med Years I am very excited about today's guest. Now, I spoke about this guest and an article that he wrote back in session 182, which you can find at medicalschoolhq.net slash 182. The title of his article that was published in Scientific American was, was It's Time to Retire Pre-Med. The existing system of pre-medical education is broken and needs to be fixed. And back in session 182, I broke apart the article that he wrote, and I gave my thoughts, most of them disagreeing with what he wrote. And luckily, I, I wasn't too mean on the podcast because he was happy to join me here today. And so I'm going to share that conversation with you now. Let's go ahead and welcome Ned to the show. Ned, welcome to the pre-med years. Thanks for joining me. Hi, thanks so much for having me. So you are a recently graduated, recently minted physician. Congratulations <laughs> on that. <laughs> it's a little, a little scary, but yeah, thank you. <laughs> so at this point in your training, with the last four years under you and done with, what, what can you say, looking at it now, how do you feel now compared to where you went in? Was it, was it everything that you thought it would be? Was it crazier was it easier no i mean yeah it's a it's a great question i mean it's always nice to reflect when you get to you know kind of a milestone and so i think yeah being at the end of medical school now 
I think I'm kind of at a similar aspect that when you're starting medical school, you're kind of daunted, like, you know, what's happening ahead and, you know, what am I getting myself into? And I'm kind of at that same phase now with residency. <laughs> so I'm mm-hmm. like, you know, what am I getting myself into and uh, what's going to happen in the residency? But yeah, I mean, I think, you know, obviously medical school, like everything else has its ups and its downs. You have, you know, your sleepless nights, you have your triumph moments with patients and things like that. But, you know, really taking away from it, it was, you know, yeah, it was an absolutely fantastic experience. I, you know, had some of the most incredible opportunities in my life, you know, everything from, you know, anatomy lab all the way up to, you know, the first time in the operating room and all of those things. Um, and yeah, I mean, leaving it now, I'm absolutely looking forward to residency and, uh, you know, I can't say enough good things. What was your draw to get into medicine? Yeah. So, I mean, it's a, it's a great question. This is the, you know, the typical, uh, interview question. Right? <laughs> I feel like I'm applying again. Um, no, so I actually, you know, I was always, interested in humanities as well. And I think the opening line for my medical school application said something like, you know, uh, I'm not surprised when people say I should apply to law school because I loved, you know, reading about politics and current events and writing and things like that. Um, But I also had seen a lot of aspects of medicine, you know, a lot of uh, physicians in my family. And I'd always, you know, actually counter to, you know, we'll talk about the article, but counter to what it portrays, I actually liked a lot of my science classes. And so I was kind of grappling with, you know, if I like the humanities and I like the sciences, how can I, you know, merge these? And I really, you know, I thought a career in medicine is kind of this great synergy between the two because you get kind of the humanities side of these incredible stories from patients and talking to people and, um, you know, learning about their lives. And then you also get the really interesting science aspects, you know, with new discoveries and new drugs and things like that. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I, it, it really has uh, worked out and, you know, we'll, we'll see how it goes the next few years with residency as well. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Talk, talk about the humanities part there, and we'll we'll dig into this article in a little bit. But okay, from a from your perspective, somebody who liked humanities and now going through medical school, obviously not not out there actually practicing and needing to do this to to quote unquote make a living. Yeah, what what is it about? being a medical student and and maybe what pre-meds can take from this as well what is it about the humanity side that you're able to connect with and and how can a student get better at that part of it yeah i mean right so there's a couple angles of that you know so one is especially in admissions and stuff there's a lot of medicine is about you know empathy and being able to sit with patients and talk with them and you know they really allow you into their lives during some of the most private and you know difficult experiences that they'll ever have and so there's kind of a humanistic you know humanities type aspect of uh, you know, learning how to do that. And so we talk about in admissions, oh, you know, how much can you teach empathy or things like that. But, you know, I think there's been a real boom, especially in the humanities in recent years in medical education. You know, obviously, as I talked about in the article, you know, the MCAT shifting towards, you know, psychology, social sciences, or, you know, more medical schools having, you know, arts workshops and things like that. But I think, especially in this day and age where the practice of medicine and you know, obviously I haven't practiced as I've, you know, only done sub internships and rotations and stuff, but from what I've seen at least is becoming so, you know, computerized and, you know, check boxes and things like that, where, you know, there's all these studies showing interns and residents only spend X number of minutes with patients yeah. a day and the remaining hours on the computer. Um, I think patients and providers too are really longing for that human connection again. And for, um, as I mentioned, you know, the stories and being able to, you know, truly value helping people rather than, you know, sitting behind a computer and just typing orders and having someone else do it. And so I think, 
you know, there's real benefit in the humanities. I'm a huge advocate for humanities and medical education, whether that be writing or playing music or theater or anything like that, because I think there's, you know, there is studies or whatever, you know, or at least people theorize showing how it can combat burnout and, you know, how about people getting stressed out in medicine, how that can help. But I also do think it helps you connect with patients. Um, we had a class during my third year, um, uh, which you know is obviously a, usually an intense year of medical school where you're doing your patient rotations and you're getting graded and you're taking exams. And it was every couple of weeks or so, but we would sit with our classmates and talk about our experiences. And just that experience of, you know, you don't think about that as, you know, the practice of medicine is being able to sit and reflect and, you know, write, uh, you know, passages about what's happened. Um, but that was, oh, for me at least, it was a huge, you know, important experience because you really reflect on what's happened. You get to really understand a lot more about your patients when you actually sit down and think about it than if you're just kind of automated following these treatment algorithms and, you know, trying to get home at the end of the day. Yeah, that's awesome. What was your, you, you went to, uh, was it Cornell for undergrad? Yeah, yeah, upstate New York, so nice, nice and cold. <laughs> yeah, great, awesome. So you go to a, a great undergrad, and then you went to Harvard for medical school. Talk about the journey to, obviously, a great undergrad and going to probably one of the preeminent medical schools in the country. Was that always your goal, or was that just something you you reached for and you accomplished? I mean, I... I... I don't know. I think I was absolutely very fortunate. You know, I obviously came, my parents are huge on education. And so, um, I think they always, you know, pushed me to my limits of, you know, always doing extra credit or things like that or whatever. But, um, yeah, I mean, Cornell was an absolutely fantastic school. Can't say enough good things about it, despite, you know, what you'll hear in the office and things like that. But, uh, um, yeah, it was a fantastic school. The reason actually I ended up picking Cornell, you know, is that it's, uh, one of the larger ivies. And so when I, as I mentioned, being concerned about humanities versus sciences, when I came in, it, you know, really had this breadth of offerings. You know, you could take classes in beekeeping or classes in the history of hip hop or sciences or, you know, whatever. Um, and so that was really attractive to me. And so, you know, I showed up and tried a lot of different classes. And as I mentioned, you know, I ultimately decided on medicine. Um, in terms of going to Harvard after, you know, I grew up in Boston, so obviously wanting to go home was a nice factor. But then also there's, um, it's a really encouraging environment where there's, you know, fantastic students doing exciting things. And yeah, um, you know, when students apply, you, you go for revisits and stuff and you just kind of get a gut feeling of where you'd like to go. And that's kind of where it worked out for me. Awesome. What was the, the hardest thing in your pre-med journey? The hardest thing? Oof, that's a... Um, yeah, there's a lot of, uh, tough things in pre-med, right? Um, yeah, I don't know. I think it's kind of some of the stuff that I talked about in the article of feeling like, um, you know, obviously tens of thousands of people do it, uh, a year, but a lot of the time when you're in pre-med, you can feel very alone. And I think that's a really hard part because, you know, sure you'll have group projects on labs or something like that once in a while. But for the most part, um, with curved classes and with, you know, the intense competition and things like that, you really kind of feel like you're, you're you know, by yourself, you're alone, you're kind of like, uh, what's, you know, treading water or whatever, trying to, you know, do the best that you can. And so obviously, you know, Cornell had great, you know, career resources or whatever, you know, advising services. And a lot of universities have that. Um, but I think that's, you know, and I know you took issue with the use of the word dehumanizing um, in the experience of pre-med, but I think that aspect of, especially when you're curved and you feel like your interests are, you know, you doing well is counter to your classmates doing well, um, that often can really isolate you and make you feel alone. And I think that that can, yeah, that can be a difficult experience, especially when pre-med is so tough already. Um, if you feel like you're by yourself, 
um, that can make it only harder, you know? Yeah. Let's, let's go ahead and dig into the article. We're, we're kind of skirting around it a little bit. So you, <laughs> you wrote this, this guest blog on the Scientific American yeah. uh, platform called It's Time to Retire Pre-Med. What was the impetus for writing that? Yeah, so, um, you know, it's an article I've actually been thinking about for a long time. It's just something, you know, I think early in medical school we had read about the Flexner Report, which, you know, we can talk about later, but that's, you know, Abraham Flexner was this, you know, educator who the Carnegie Foundation hired to, you know, issue a report basically because medical education back in the early 1900s um, didn't have that stringent standards, you know, people from my understanding at least is that people could, you know, pay to get into medical school and there weren't like standard curricula and schools taught different things and, you know, it wasn't very science-based. And so he went and did this report saying that, you know, wow, if we really want to train great doctors, you know, they need to have great training in the sciences and, you know, we need to be teaching, you know, standard concepts across medical schools and have, you know, strict admissions criteria, which is all absolutely true. Um, but as I say, at the end of the piece is that I think we've taken that a little bit too far. And I think when I came out of college, it was, you know, again, a time where you really kind of reflect and look back. And I was like, wow, that was, you know, super intense. Um, and, you know, thankfully I was, I, you know, did all right and, you know, ended up at a great school. Um, but yeah, just thinking back on, you know, how can we improve this process? And especially now that I've been getting closer and closer to the practice of medicine and, you know, working in hospitals and seeing how patient care works, you see this kind of disconnect between how we select doctors and then how doctors actually practice on a day-to-day -day basis. And so I think that's really why I wanted to write the article is kind of to just raise the question as to, you know, whether we should be rethinking these requirements and, you know, what would be the best way to uh, screen for physicians in the U.S. Do you think your perspective is skewed because you went to an Ivy? I mean... Uh, yeah, it's a great question. Obviously, um, that has some influence on it, right? You know, I, I can't generalize my experience at an Ivy League school to, you know, if somebody's pre-med at a post-bac program or a community uh, college or something like that, you know, um, or even a state school or whatever, and you know, even across Ivies, you can't generalize, right? So any any experience that I derive from pre-med is going to be different from the vast majority of other people's. But, you know, the reason why I thought to write this article and why I think it would resonate with a lot of people is one, having gone through the process myself, um, you know, now that I'm in medical school and I have so many friends who are in medical school uh, who came from other schools, you can hear that they've had similar experiences. So I thought, okay, I'm, <laughs> I'm not insane. This is actually happening in other places as well. Um, and then I also, um, you know, sat on the admissions committee for a year with other students at Harvard. And so we got to, you know, interview and review applicants. And that was another experience where you're seeing it from the flip side. And you're thinking, you know, are these really the traits that we want to have in physicians? And so I think both those angles, you know, the common experience of pre-med as well, seeing it from the other side made me really think about are there ways that we can, you know, better approach um, how we do pre-med and how people apply to medical school. Yeah. And if you're listening to this and you haven't heard session 182 at medicalschoolhq.net slash 182, that's where I kind of break down and critique this article that Ned wrote. Where he rips me apart. Ripped you apart. <laughs> I'm glad I did it nicely so that I, we, we can have you on anyway. Uh, no, uh, um, no, but it's, it's interesting. So let's, let's talk about it from a point of view. And, and I, actually, I, I just want to give my point of view real yeah, quick. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I went to a large state school, University of Florida. And I loved my pre-med journey. I, I loved the classes. I loved my classmates. I had a, a great core group of pre-meds um, that I don't think I would have survived pre-med without them. And, yeah. 
And I think that has been the basis for a lot of what I talk about on the show, talking about collaboration and not competition and and being that kind of anti-student doctor network. <laughs> and 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 so I had a completely different experience than you did. Granted, it was 10 or so years ago. Yeah. How long ago was that? 15? Yeah, I don't even, I'm old. <laughs> anyway, so so again, and probably a little bit less competitive than it is now, but it, it completely different outlook. And so yeah. and and so that's where the question is it is it an Ivy thing or is it um is it just the the state of the union now or yeah. or what yeah. what is it? I, I think it's a great point. And so obviously, you know, the competition to get into medical school is, you know, intense no matter what. I think there was something like uh, 52,000 applicants to medical school last year and there was only 20,000 spots, right? Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, the question I wanted to raise with the column wasn't should pre-med be competitive because just by the, you know, nature of more people applying in spots, it's going to be competitive, right? But the question is whether or not we're screening people on the right basis and whether or not the classes that we use to screen people into medical school is ultimately beneficial to patients and to the practice of medicine. And so, you know, when we ask what, you know, does getting an A plus on organic chemistry mean you're going to be a good doctor? I'm absolutely I'm not, not. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not, <laughs> I'll I'm not, answer that for you. That's a no. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I'm, not, I'm not sure that it does. And so I, um, you know, one uh, thing that I took from, you know, your criticism of the column is about the importance of sciences. Right. And so uh, I think that was, um, you know, one aspect of the column that some people could misinterpret is the notion that we should, you know, get rid of all science requirements. And, you know, I, you know, that's not true. I absolutely agree we need sciences in pre-med. You know, of course, physicians need to know the scientific method and how to read research papers and how to apply scientific concepts during patient care. But the, the problem is that the current requirements, um, you know, are not necessarily reflective of, you know, the kinds of physicians we want to care for us. And so, for example, you know, would it be more useful, um, you know, for someone who wants to become a doctor is if they take statistics, which can also teach the scientific method and how to read research paper or epidemiology or psychology rather than maybe organic chemistry or physics. And so it's not the question of, oh, we need to get rid of all sciences. They're not important. It's just, are these set of basically four primary classes that we've been taking for the, you know, the last century, are they outdated? Are they completely accurate? Are these the best things that we're ever going to use to screen doctors? And I think, no, I think we should probably rethink um, you know, how we screen doctors and we can think of different ways that we can get, you know, those important concepts like the scientific method across. Yeah. And, and those four core, you're talking about biology, chemistry, physics, and orgo. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think you mentioned, you know, some class, some schools will also require calculus or mathematics, but I, yeah. the general point of those four, um, basic sciences, which kind of have formed the foundation of pre-med as well as, you know, most of the history of the MCAT. Yeah. All right, so let's let's go under the assumption that your article is not going to change the pre-medical education system overnight. Oh, come on, man! Oh, credit. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean, you, you are a Harvard grad, but I don't think you have that much power yet. Absolutely, going with that assumption. <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about how the pre-med that that is listening now. Yeah. What can they do to change their experience? Yeah, so I think um, in terms of, you know, actionable advice, I think that's what you're getting at, is, um, you know, a couple things. So one, I think the more people 
stand up and talk about these issues. I think that's important because obviously, right, you know, me just writing this is not going to change every medical school across the country saying, oh, oh, oh now we'll listen to him. <laughs> that's not going to happen. But I think, you know, there have been columns in the New England Journal of Medicine, you know, this one in Scientific American and different venues. And the more people speak up and say, hey, is this, is this really the kind of doctors that we want? You know, if pre-meds are going through this and saying, I, I want to be a doctor, I want to care for patients, but I don't understand why I have to know you know, uh, you know, Schrodinger's equation or why I have to go over black body radiation rather than, you know, and some people might argue knowing Shakespeare, writing a play or things like that could also be useful. And so I think speaking up, um, is obviously one important thing, but you know, some, I have the advantage of saying that on the other side, right? If you're applying, it's much uh, scarier to say, Oh, I'm going to speak up and, you know, rage against the machine. Um, but I, I think it should also, people shouldn't be afraid to branch out from the traditional requirements. Um, because, I saw a lot of people, at least when I was applying, who said, okay, organic chemistry, physics, chemistry, and biology, if I'm already taking those to go to med school, I might as well just major in biology, or I might as well just major in chemistry. And I don't think you should do that if those aren't things you want to be studying, right? Um, I think if you're passionate about those plays that we talked about, or about music, or about um, social activism, or politics, or you know, math, or whatever, I think you should pursue those things because... In all honesty, you know, medical school admissions committees, sure, they're looking for a great MCAS score, they're looking for a great GPA, but they're also really looking for someone who's incredibly passionate about something they do. And so I can tell you that if you apply to medical school and you've got, you know, okay academics or whatever, but then you tick off the medical school boxes, I did a couple semesters of research, a couple semesters of volunteering, a couple semesters of shadowing, it, it kind of comes across as, you know, is this person just doing this to get into medical school? Whereas if you have someone who is deeply invested in helping underserved communities and volunteers and, or started a charity and did all of these different things, um, you know, that really comes across. And so I would never, you know, knock someone who's thinking of applying to medical school who, sure, you've got to get through those requirements. And that's what I'm you know, criticizing in the column. But outside of that, I would absolutely encourage you to do as much, you know, humanities or arts or other things. And people are afraid to do that because they think, oh, if I'm not applying from biology or chemistry or a basic science major, am I at a disadvantage? And um, I'd say if you're passionate about it and, you know, you do it well, I, th I think you're going to be successful. I, I love that you use that word, uh, a couple words that you use about checking the boxes. I, yeah. I talk a lot about uh, a lot about it on this podcast. We talk yeah. to deans, we talk to admissions committee members. There is no ch checkbox. There's no checklist that yeah. says if you do all of these things, you will get into medical school. Yeah. On the flip side, what you talked about is that passion. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I have so many conversations with students, people asking uh, in the Facebook group, people emailing me, asking, is, is it okay that if I do exercise physiology, as a major? Is it okay if I do history as a major? And, and my response is always, do what you think is going to interest you. Because when you write your personal statement, when you're at the medical school for that interview, what's going to come across is your enthusiasm, your passion for whatever you're talking about. If you majored in chemistry just because you think it's what the medical school wants to see, you're going to have no passion when you talk about it. And it really comes across um, when people are applying too, because um, you know if if you just list as an activity when you're applying, uh, you know, cycling, and you say I like to bike in my free time, it's like okay, like 
that's fine. Like, uh, that's great that you like biking. But instead, if you are really passionate about that and that's something that's important to you and you say, I joined the cycling club and I was a leader in it and recruited other people and I did a fundraiser, you know, you can tell when somebody's actually invested in something versus if they're just listing something to hope that it does something. And so <laughs> I need 15. Um, I need to add yeah, extra things. Yeah. yeah, a lot of people get into that. So. <laughs> that's awesome. From, from your perspective, you said you served on the admissions committee as a, as a student at Harvard. What, what was maybe one of the, the biggest mistakes that you saw as the pre-meds were coming through? Um, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I mean, it's, it's tough, right? Cause there's no specific check boxes, but yeah, I mean, I would say that try and be, you know, passionate about one, you know, not one thing, but try and really show that you care about the things that you're doing rather than, as we mentioned, just listing different activities. And so if you say, um, you know, I play this instrument, but I haven't done it since high school or I <laughs> cycle, but I just do it in my free time. And like, if you haven't, you know, done it in organized settings or been, been a leader in that, you know, you, you really should try and show that this is something you're passionate about and that you're interested in. That's probably the major thing. Yeah. Let's kind of steer back towards the article and, and what pre-meds can be doing. We talked a little bit about what the pre-med themselves can do, maybe majoring in something a little bit uh, crazy, what they may consider crazy. <laughs> what about the interactions with the other students? Because that was, that was a large part of your article, uh, your opening story talking about one of your classmates cheering for the failure of another student, basically. Yeah, I mean, so... Yeah, and your, your column, you're saying, oh, I don't know if this person's cheering because it's like, ooh, hooray. Yeah, I can tell you that's absolutely not the case. Um, I like playing devil's advocate. Yeah, I appreciate it. But yeah, this person was like, just like, yes. Like, and the, the reason why is, you know, in that lab, for instance, we were, you know, discovering the identity of some mystery powder or something like that. And uh, I, I'm pretty sure um, the quote, I'm pretty sure the uh, uh, rule is if you dropped or like you lost your sample somehow, you you automatically docked 25% of your grade Ouch. for the entire practical. And so basically her dropping that meant that her grade for that practical was down 25%. And so it's obviously cruel and awful, you know, what that other student did, you know, be like, oh, yes. Um, but as I explained later, you can kind of understand the motivation. You could say, oh, wow, that person literally just benefited from her misfortune. And so, you know, I... I've, as you mentioned, talking about collaboration on the podcast and things like that, you know, and I, I love your optimism in the podcast about how, you know, students control the curve or something along those lines and how, you know, if you do, your, you know, well on the test, you'll do well. And if you don't do well, you won't do well. But, you know, the problem is that's not necessarily how the curves work, right? The whole point of a curve is it's you compared to other people. And so I've taken tests where, you know, I've gotten a 90 and you get a B minus. And I've taken tests where I got a 65 and that meant I got an A plus. And so, I, I agree that obviously it's easy to just say, you know, oh, try and be collaborative with other pre-meds and things like that. But, you know, a big reason I wrote the column is that things like curves at an institutional level are what breed that kind of cutthroat competition because when you put people up against each other, your performance doesn't depend on yourself as much as it depends on how everyone else does. And so, sure, you control the curve in that obviously everyone, if you get 100 every single time, you're going to do better than if you don't. Um, but at the end of the day, you can take the test and know that you got an 85, but you don't know what your grade is because you don't know how everyone else did. Um, and I think that's that's stressful. And I, I think that's why, you know, writing the column, I thought, you know, is this screening for the kind of physicians we want where you're thinking about yourself and you're selfishly like, Ooh, how can I beat everybody else? And how can I get that better grade? And, um, you know, I, I think as you mentioned, collaboration and teamwork and maybe working in groups would be a better approach. 
there was an awesome uh, research. I don't know if it was a research study or if it was just um, a, a story that came out of, oh man, I, I don't know where I, I, I heard this on another podcast and I'll have to find it and put it in the show notes for this podcast. But it was a story about breeding chickens and, okay. and and what they were trying to do was breed the the biggest baddest chickens for I don't know why they were doing it and and what they were doing was they would selectively pick out the biggest baddest chickens out of each crop or each each uh, uh, new crop of chickens that came out. Artificial selection. Uh, Remember yeah, that artif- from my, my, my basic science days. Exactly. So, that, so there's this selection bias. You wanna <laughs> of of uh, these biggest baddest chickens, and they were the assumption was that there was gonna be like more more production of of eggs or or bigger meats, whatever they were going for. Mm-hmm. And what they found was as they were selecting these bigger, badder chickens, the chickens destroyed each other because it was all of these basically alpha males. Yeah. And I immediately thought of the stereotypical pre-med when, yeah. when they were talking about this because that's what happens and that's what you describe in your article. And, and what one of my biggest reasons, again, for doing this podcast and for, for doing the episode where I critiqued your article was that I, it, it, my perspective, again, being on this side of it now and even yeah. as I went through it, Number one, being on this side of it, you, you can't be that way because that's not how you practice medicine. But going through it as well, it didn't need to be that way because as, as you break down the data of who applies to medical school, and, and you talked about it earlier, 50-some thousand applications and only 20-some thousand seats. So a lot of people don't get in. But I've said it time and time again on here, the students that deserve to get in the ones that have good grades, the one that, the ones that have good MCAT scores, the ones that have taken the time to write a legible and understandable personal statement, the ones that have taken the time to do the extracurriculars, they almost always get in, almost always. And I talk to a lot of students that, that I'll get an email saying, I have, I have a 2.5 GPA and a, a 19 on the MCAT and I'm applying this semester, can you read my personal statement? And I'm just like, uh, no. <laughs> Good luck. There, there are a lot of people that that apply like that as well, and so I, I'm all about collaborating. Again, collaboration, not yeah. competition. And yeah. and if if you get an A and your classmate gets an A, you're not taking a seat from your classmate, and they're not taking one from you. You're both taking a seat from someone who doesn't deserve one. Yeah, I mean, well, so first of all, yeah, I'm not sure if that's how curves work, but I mean, second. Um, you know, I think it misses the point of the article, right? Which is that, sure, I totally agree for listeners of the podcast. If you get a four O and a forty five MCAT or whatever the new you know scoring system is, um, you know, you'll more likely than not get into medical school. But that's not that's not the point of the the podcast. Is that you're not going to get in the point? Or sorry, not the part, the column. The point of the column is that should those people be the ones who get it? Is that the person who has the 45 MCAT and the 4.0 who went through organic chemistry and physics and you know some things that may not 
mean that they're the best doctor. And so even though they're the shining star who, you know, did an incredible job through all of these prerequisites, does that mean that they should be the person who should be a doctor? I'm not sure. And so I, I referenced that in my article about, you know, having friends who I am one, I'm absolutely confident would have been fantastic clinicians. They are empathic. They're incredible. They're such brilliant people. But they start off and they're like, yeah, I want to care for patients. I think medicine sounds like a fascinating career. And they're sitting there and they get discouraged because, you know, they're studying, uh, you know, atomic orbital theory. And it has nothing to do with what they're eventually going to be doing. Um, So I think, you know, yeah, in terms of encouraging listeners of the podcast, yeah, absolutely. If you do well within the, you know, existing paradigms of what you need to do to get into medical school, sure, you will probably get into medical school. Um, But the reason for the column was to question those paradigms is to say, is this the right screening tool for um, who should be getting into medical school? And, you know, my answer still is, you know, I'm not sure that it is. If if you had the magic wand and were <laughs> all of a sudden in charge of the AAMC and you oh, were wow. able to dictate to all of the medical schools, this is how you are going to select students. Yeah. What would it be? Uh, wow. I mean, I don't. I don't have the answers. You know. Um, you know. I think the point of the column was obviously to you know raise questions. You know. I think we should reevaluate. Uh, you know, obviously the basic science requirements. So as I've mentioned again, absolutely, we need sciences. We need to teach the scientific method. But as I mentioned earlier, uh, you know, is statistics, is that better than organic chemistry? I'm not sure, but I think it's something we should think about. Is biochemistry or genetics or any of these better than physics? You know, those are things that, you know, we should think about. Um, You know, same thing with the MCAT. I'm absolutely thrilled that they are... Um, you know, they recently expanded to more, you know, social sciences and ethics and psychology. But uh, still, you know, when I talk to people who are applying these days, you know, uh, students spend, you know, 90% of their time when they're studying, just studying the science concepts and not other ideas. So I would definitely promote, uh, you know, continuing those shifts. You know, I'd love to see more uh, programs like the humanities and medicine program at Mount Sinai, which I referenced at the end of the article, which is the... uh, That's Flex Med. Yeah, uh, FlexMed, so it's the yep. uh, like, uh, early decision program where you, you know, um, take kind of a variation of the pre-med uh, requirements. Um, you know, I think all of those would be important. And, you know, another thing that I didn't get a chance, you know, you obviously with column space you get limited, but to bring up is kind of the idea of evidence, right? Um, you know, medicine is in the 21st century is very evidence-based. Uh, you give, you know, treatments on the basis of research and data and, you know, evidence-based guidelines. Um, but, you know, it's been decades of these pre-med requirements, and we don't really have that much evidence to suggest people who do well in these basic science prerequisites are better medical students or doctors, uh, you know, than people who do well in some of the sciences and some other classes, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, there might be studies out there saying, oh, okay, you're GPA and MCAT, sure, that's a better predictor. Um, but I think explicitly comparing, you know, the traditional basic science requirements versus a variation, we don't have that much evidence. And I even cite that one study of, you know, the faculty at... Uh, Mount Sinai, who compared the, the FlexMed students to the non, and they found overall, you know, there were some variations, but overall they performed pretty much the same. And so mm-hmm. if we're going to tell ourselves that medicine is an evidence-based, you know, profession and we're going to screen people into this profession where the practice of medicine is evidence-based, it's strange that we're recruiting the next generation of physicians based on, you know, a century-old paradigm that hasn't been tested in research. Yeah. And I, I had Dr. Muller on back in way back in session seventeen over oh, wow. over back, two years ago. Back uh, in uh, the beginning. <laughs> yeah, actually session sixteen. Sorry. Um, and and we talked about FlexMed, and I've wanted to follow up with him. And I think one of the things that we talked about in that discussion in that podcast episode 
was exactly your point. What, how, do, how are we going to look at this from an evidence standpoint? And, and the gold standard should be, in my opinion, patient outcomes. It shouldn't be board scores. It shouldn't be MCAT scores, which is kind of what, or not MCAT, um, the board scores. Yeah. Uh, it, like the, step one or step pat, two. Yeah, yeah, board scores and, and pass rates and, and all of that. And, and that's kind of the, the data that they've been using as, to compare the, the science and, and non-science students. But, yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree that patient outcomes in terms of who can treat patients better is, and then also, obviously, it's subjective, but patient satisfaction scores, right? So, I mean, mm-hmm. it's an important element. One, you know, just for listeners, the different outcomes would be, you know, if a patient comes into the hospital with pneumonia, you know, in terms of mortality or morbidity, et cetera, you know, 30 days later, how well are they doing? And so that's a measure of outcomes. How well do you treat that patient? Um, but then uh, in terms of, uh, sorry, I lost my trade of thought, in terms of outcomes versus, um, what was the other thing we are talking about? I don't know. I lost my train of thought there. Sorry about that. Board scores and Board scores. Outcomes. Oh, sorry, satisfaction scores. That's All right, right, there we and go. So yeah, outcomes is, you know, treating the patient, but satisfaction scores is how, uh, well was the experience, you know, that and that, you know, more readily measures bedside manner, you know, how polite was the person, how professional were they, how comfortable did the patient feel with them? And those are really difficult things to measure, right? So it's much easier to compare, um, you know, oh, step one scores or whatever. And that's, you know, what they use a lot in that study. But, you know, I totally agree is, yeah, how, how much are these classes or how much are these recruiting tools or, you know, uh, teaching paradigms benefiting patients? Um, and that, that would be uh, the ideal, right? And, you know, that's, that's one thing that bothers me when, I talk about these, you know, the debate about reforming pre-med is when people say organic chemistry or, um, you know, physics or some of these classes, uh, you know, referring to the vague notion of critical thinking skills, right? Um, you know, and a lot of people say, oh, critical thinking and other vague notion, you know, it makes you a better thinker. And, you know, I think there's two problems with that. You know, first, I'm not sure there's much evidence, you know, how have you proved evidence of that, that organic chemistry makes you a better critical thinker than does statistics or something like that? Um, you know, and second, I, it's sort of insulting to other careers too, because to say, <laughs> oh, you know, you don't develop critical thinking skills because you only took economics or yep. you only took, you know, mathematics or whatever. Um, so I think, you know, every, I think a lot of people agree going to college, you know, hopefully you become a better thinker and, um, you know, more accepting of worldviews or whatever. Um, but I, I don't buy that argument a lot when people say, oh, pre-med, we need these science classes because they make you a better critical thinker. My th- first thought is, okay, where's the evidence? And the second thought is, you know, other classes definitely do as well. I mean, now I'm thinking back to my episode I did, <clears throat> and wondering if I said that too. <laughs> if if uh, when I was critiquing your article, if I said we need that for critical thinking, I'll take a listen after. <laughs> uh oh, uh oh, I'm worried now because uh, yeah, I I agree with your point um, that that you can be a critical thinker in in the humanities and um, has nothing to do with science itself. Yeah, yeah. Uh, awesome, Ned. Thanks for this discussion. Any last minute w- pearls of wisdom for the pre-med out there struggling with their classmates? Oh, um, wow. Yeah. I, you know, keep at it. It's an absolutely, um, profound experience to be able to care for patients. So I think it's hard to keep sight of that light at the end of the tunnel. Right. And that's why hopefully, you know, people will stand up and talk about changing the tunnel and, uh, you know, uh, reforming what pre-med is like. But, um, you know, for the person who's struggling out there and doubting themselves, I'd say, um, you know, you can get lost in the problem sets and the curves and all those things that, you know, obviously we'd love to change institutionally that take time, but, you know, um, take a step back and think about, um, you know, think about 
what you want to do when you're older. Think about what makes you happy. Um, and, you know, yeah, I think that's why volunteering shadowing experiences can be helpful. You can see what the practice of medicine is like because, um, yeah, there really aren't that many other professions in the world where you do just get to sit down with someone you've never met uh, for the first time and they basically open up their life, you know, every aspect of their life to you that even maybe their spouses or their closest confidants don't know. And, um that's a really extraordinary privilege and uh yeah i'm absolutely thrilled to be starting residency and you know hope uh some future colleagues are listening to this as well all right i think we got to the heart of it of what ned was trying to get across in his article titled it's time to retire pre-med again scientific american blog and again, links to that will be in the show notes, medicalschoolhq.net slash 186 for this podcast episode. I think we, we both agreed that science is still a key factor in education for physicians, uh, but there's lots of room for improvement in, in other classes, other opportunities to teaching the scientific method and teaching statistics, teaching how to read research instead of just taking the organic chemistries, the biochemistries, whatever else. So uh, lots of great discussion. Thank you, Ned, for taking the time to come on to the show. Uh, Ned is on his way to UCSF for psychiatry. So good luck to Ned in the future with everything that he's doing. I do want to take one second and thank the several people that have taken the time to write write in and give us ratings and reviews in iTunes. We have Johnny8D who says, The Lighthouse in the Pre-Med Fog. I just love that visual. That's an awesome visual. Johnny8D says, There's a lot of contradicting info out there and a as a transfer student from a community college that didn't have a great pre-medical support system, the pre-med years is a godsend. Thank you, Johnny8D, for that review. If you would like to leave us a review, go to medicalschoolhq.net slash iTunes. That's the best place to leave a rating and review for us. We have Retina who says, recommended to all. This is by far the best podcast series I've listened to. Thank you, X-Retina, for that. And we have one more here from Kate R.N., who says, love this podcast. I am a non-trad registered nurse making the jump to start medical school in August. This podcast has been very informative as I contemplate the changes to come and work to set myself up for success. Thank you, Kate R.N. Good luck on your journey, and maybe we'll have you on the show to talk about your journey from nursing to medicine. Again, medicalschoolhq.net slash iTunes if you would like to leave a rating and review. I do want to encourage you, if you haven't yet, go check out medschoolinterviewbook.com. Now, as we're publishing this on 15 of the 15th of June, 2016, we have about a month until the pre-med playbook medical school interview book comes out. Now, if you go over to medschoolinterviewbook.com, you can sign up to be notified when we get that book ready to ship out on Amazon. It'll be on Kindle, and you can get a paperback through Kindle as well. I've, I, I've told some people that this is probably the hardest project I've ever worked on, uh, maybe outside of medical school, 
Um, and uh, it's a, a grueling process, but a fun one. And so I highly recommend you go over there. I've had uh, Dr. Politis, who's been on the show a couple times. He does some admission stuff at WashU. He, he runs uh, a pre-med program at WashU for the undergrad kids. I had him read it and got a glowing recommendation from him. So I know it will be very valuable for you as you prepare for your interviews. Again, medschoolinterviewbook.com. Well, I hope you got a ton of great information out of the podcast today. And as always, I hope you join us next week here at the Medical School Headquarters and the Pre-Med Years Podcast.